Are we good to go, Greg? All right. Good morning, Calvary. Welcome to Sunday School. We're back with our Answers Bible Curriculum, and we're in the book of Daniel today. We're in lesson four of our quarters theme, God Protects and Restores, and today's lesson is entitled, God Protects. And you may have noticed they were working with the, the congregation mic up there. I'm actually able to hear a lot more than I have in the last two lessons, so I might be able to hear you all if you just speak loudly without a special mic being passed around, which is great because that means we can talk a little bit more, we can interact a little bit more. So before we talk about today's lesson, let's talk about what we discussed last week. Last week, we looked at Jeremiah 31 and God's proclamation of a future new covenant. We saw last week that unlike the old covenant given given to Israel through the law at Mount Sinai, the new covenant would be unconditional. God unilaterally would restore Israel's prosperity, would change the hearts of his people, and forgive his people for their sins. Israel would do nothing to merit these promises and could do nothing to lose them. And we explored some of the implications of that covenant, as well as our place as Christians and as even for many of us as Gentiles in the new covenant. But there's one thing we didn't get to talk about last week, and I, I did want to mention it this morning before we move on. Perhaps you had this question when we were talking about the new covenant and the old covenant. If the old covenant was always meant to point people to their need for the new covenant, then how are people saved under the old covenant? Well, if we mean who was saved through the old covenant, well, the answer is nobody. Because the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, can't do that. All it can do is point out sin. It can give knowledge of sin. That's its purpose. It can't provide salvation, so no one was ever saved through the Old Covenant. But if we mean who was saved during the time of the Old Covenant, well, then plenty of people. Moses, David, Joshua, Rahab, Elijah, Naboth, Naaman the Syrian, many others. They were saved in the time of the Old Covenant. Well, how were these people saved if it wasn't through the Old Covenant? Well, they were saved not not by the law, but by the same means that you and I are saved. Salvation by faith in God and faith in God's provision for sin. Because think about it. Whenever the New Testament talks about, or no, let me say it this way. In the New Testament, we have a number of writers, Paul, the writer of Hebrews, and James. They all point to the Old Testament for the example of salvation by faith. And to whom do they point as the father of all those who believe by faith? Abraham. That's right. And was Abraham ever under the Mosaic Covenant? No, he was before the Mosaic Covenant. Yet Abraham was clearly saved and counted righteous. And this is what Genesis says. Genesis 15, 5 and 6. And God took Abram outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars. And if or count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he, that's Abraham, believed in the Lord, believed in Yahweh, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. He believed and was counted righteous. Now, did Abraham believe on his own, or did God cause Abraham to believe? That's right. God is the one who gave him the faith. Now, it doesn't say that explicitly there, but we know uh, in Genesis, but we know that from the other scriptures. So Abraham was saved just as those in the new covenant were saved. And as, as were and are all the saints before and after Abraham, their salvation was unconditionally fulfilled as God gave them new hearts to believe in him, to love his law, and to trust him that God would do what was necessary to take care of sin. So they didn't have all the specifics of how God was going to take care of sin, but they knew that God was going to make atonement and provide forgiveness. And that was the details of that were increasingly revealed in the Old Testament, and we have the full revelation as New Testament believers. For Old Testament saints, then, the Mosaic Covenant was also meant to show them their sin and inability to meet God's standard so that they might cry out to God for mercy and believe in him to provide. 
So the law functioned for them the same way that it functions for us in terms of salvation. It was to point them to their need for God's mercy apart from anything that they could do. And we actually see this, um, we see this vividly played out in one of the Psalms. In Psalm 19, you may remember Psalm 19. That's the one that, um, or no, we've, I think, talked about it in the past. Psalm 19 begins with David acknowledging that God reveals his glory in creation. And then how God reveals his goodness, his holiness, and his wisdom in the law. And remember, the old covenant stipulations are contained in the law, the law of Moses. He talks about how wonderful God's law is, what it's able to do for a person. But what is David's reaction to all of that? Looking at creation, looking at the law, does he say, I look, your law is so great, don't worry, I'm going to keep the whole thing. I'll perfectly keep the law, no worries, God. Is that what David's reaction is? No, that's not. This is what David says, Psalm 19, verses 12 to 14. Right after looking at the law and talking about how great God is for the law and uh, how great the law is, he says, Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless. And I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So David was telling God, I know I cannot and do not perfectly keep your law. I have sins I don't even know about. So please have mercy on me. I need you to... um, I need you to be my redeemer. I need you to make me acceptable in your sight. And you can look at other Psalms too, where David is asking God, I need you to cleanse me. And if you cleanse me, I know I'll be clean. So David and the rest of the Old Testament saints, they didn't know exactly how God would accomplish acquittal of their sins, but they knew that he would. And they had the picture of that in the Old Testament sacrificial system. Therefore, the Old Testament saints were confident that when they died, they would be with God. And we also hear a testimony of that from Job. Job 19, verses 25 to 26, Job says, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. So, in summary, salvation has always been given by grace through faith. So that those who believed in the Lord were counted righteous and had assurance of eternal life. It was this way in the Old Testament before Moses, in the Old Testament after Moses, and it still is today. Now, another question may arise. On top of that discussion, if salvation has always been accomplished in a way that's similar or part of the new covenant, then how is the new covenant new? How is the new covenant new in Jeremiah? Well, there are at least two ways. One is it's new because the means of salvation in the new covenant had never been, or the means of salvation before the new covenant had never been revealed. But it is fully revealed when the one who inaugurates the new covenant, who actually mediates the new covenant, arrives. That's Jesus, right? Jesus Christ. And we see his work in the new covenant. His blood being shed, his sacrifice being made on the cross. The revelation of Jesus and his work was never in in the Old Covenant or in the Old Testament. It was going to be something new that would come. So even though people were were benefiting from the effects of the New Covenant before it arrived, the one who actually brings the New Covenant, validates the New Covenant, mediates the New Covenant, that was yet to come. And so in that sense, that would be very new. But there's something else that's also very new about the New Covenant, and that is that it's a salvation covenant made with all Israel. God made a covenant with all Israel before. The old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. But that was not a covenant of salvation. That was a covenant that says, if you obey me, I'll bless you. And if you disobey me, I'll curse you. There was no guarantee of salvation for everybody in that covenant. But in the new covenant, God tells Israel and Judah, I'm going to change all of your hearts and the hearts of your descendants. This is something that never happened before with Israel. And other people would be part of that, that promise. But specifically, The newness of the covenant is that it would be a new experience for all Israel. Those are at least two of the ways. 
questions about what I've just shared or about what we talked about last week? All right, I hear a question. Yeah, I think I heard mostly what you said. Um, is that Steve? Who is that? Wait, who was it? Okay, I thought I thought that was your voice, but I, I couldn't see the form. Yeah, uh, I totally agree. The gospel was certainly declared in the Old Testament, and that's why we can say that, or that's one of the reasons why we can say salvation has always been by faith. And I think you're right to point out, Steve, that... Um, one of the New Testament verses even says that the gospel was preached to Abraham. So yeah, definitely. Any other questions about last week's lesson? Okay. Well, as we transition from what we learned last week to what we're going to learn about today, I want you to think about some questions to get us ready for today's lesson. And the questions are these. Think of the last time that you were tested by trials persecution, or the prospect of future hardship? How did you respond in that time? Did you trust God and proceed in obedience? Or did you yield to sin? Were you happy and confident in God despite the difficulty? Or did you give way to fear, worry, anger, depression, or even despair? Did you compromise in the moment of testing? Did you flee from the opportunity to make God's worth known? Or did your obedience shine as a light to the world? I ask these questions because what we're going to look at today in our Sunday school class are two other examples of God sovereignly providing for and protecting his children through difficult obedience. And as you know from the email or or um, other sources, what we're going to be talking about today, these are well-known accounts. These are well-known accounts of the Bible, yet I fear my concern is that we have not really learned what we ought to from them. You know that the scriptures are designed to change us. We are responsible to hear, to meditate on, and to implement God's truth in our lives. And so even for the well-known stories, accounts, that needs to be true. And may God make that true this morning. What precisely are we looking at today? Here's our outline. We're going to hear what God did when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into a furnace to die. We're also going to hear what God did when Daniel was thrown into a lion's pit to be killed. And then we're going to come back and consider application for ourselves. Let's pray before we go on. Great God, Yahweh, Lord, I pray that you would help me to be able to explain your word this morning. Help us to be able to understand it. Lord, I pray that you would provide for this whole Sunday school lesson with its technical aspects, but also just for the, for the explanation and understanding of your word. I pray, Lord, that we would be changed, that we'd be encouraged, that we'd be emboldened, that we would say with the psalmist, we will not fear because you are with us. Do your work this morning, O Spirit. And I pray that if we need to repent of sin, that you would accomplish that. But also, if we need to be encouraged, if we need to put habits of righteousness into our lives, that you'd be doing that also. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, please open your Bibles to Daniel 3. Daniel 3 is where we start today. We're going to read this entire chapter. Before we do, let's remind ourselves of the historical situation. At this point, I remember we're back in Daniel. We've been in Daniel before. At this point, at least part of Judah is in exile. Not sure how much time has gone, gone by since uh, Daniel 1. But at least part of Israel is in exile. Judah, rather. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They're the ones we met in Daniel already. They came with the first wave of captives around 607 to 605 B.C. They lived as faithful Jews, despite the pressures to compromise. 
And God blessed these four Judean young men with wisdom and success so that they were placed into positions of power and prominence in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. Now, Daniel 2, which we didn't talk about, but just I'm going to summarize, God gave Daniel understanding of one of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. Nebuchadnezzar dreamed of a segmented statue it was made of different pieces of metal, and this statue was crushed by an uncut stone. Daniel explained that the different segments of this statue represented a succession of world kingdoms, culminating with the kingdom of God. Now, if you know, for this statue, the head was of gold. What did the head of gold represent? That's right, it was the, the kingdom or the empire of Babylon. The head of gold was Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar being the ruler of Babylon. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was amazed and pleased with Daniel's explanation. And he was so pleased that he promoted Daniel and honored Daniel's God. And even at Daniel's request, promoted Daniel's companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, to, positions, uh, to higher positions with Daniel. So that's in the backdrop of chapter 3. Let's now read chapter 3. Uh, this is page 884 if you're using the Pew Bible. So Daniel 3, we're going to read the whole chapter. Please follow along as I read. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you want to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever! You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as the, the other names given to the, the men we mentioned earlier. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my god or, or my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath. And his facial expression was altered 
towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in the army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. And these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their other clothes, and they were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the commands, king's command was urgent and the furnace has, had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste. He said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. But then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielding up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. All right, just an amazing account. Let's observe and start our analysis of the text with observations. Back at the beginning. Notice that Nebuchadnezzar built a great statue of gold. This statue is 60 by 6 cubits. Remember, a cubit is about 18 inches long. There's some variations of that measurement. But we're looking roughly at a 90-foot tall and a 9-foot wide statue. That's about, depending on what you consider a story, 6 to 9 stories high. This is a huge statue. We're given no other description of the statue's subject or appearance. We don't know what it depicted. We don't know how exactly it looked, but we know it was big, and we know it was gold. Notice whom Nebuchadnezzar summons to the statue. All his governors, his rulers, and administrators. That's what the term satraps and prefects means. They're different types of governors and administrators. And notice why he invites them. They are attending the dedication of the, attending the, dedication of the statue. And they are, too, when the music plays, bow down and worship the statue. Now, it does say later on that it refers to all peoples and tongues, and they're all to bow down. So there may have been some other people who weren't the officials and governors, but specifically it was the administrators who were invited, and they were the ones who were commanded, or, and, and they were the ones that were specifically commanded to do certain things. Now, notice all the instruments mentioned. Actually, I think it's a little bit funny that it's mentioned four times, every, every single specific instrument. But it's quite the worship band. In case you're not familiar, the lyre, the trigon, and the psaltery, they're different types of stringed instruments. They're similar to harps. So all these instruments are going to play, and they're going to make music, and everyone's supposed to bow. Now, notice the penalty for failing to bow and worship the golden image. Burning in a fiery furnace. You're going to be cast, you're going to be thrown into this fiery furnace. By the way, bowing down and worshiping this statue would have violated which of the Ten Commandments? I think I heard uh, something. Certainly the first and the second. 
Right? You have no other gods before me, and you shall not make a graven image to bow down to it. So this would certainly be a violation of the law as given by God for, for any Jew or for any really any person to do this. Now notice how Nebuchadnezzar learns that the three Judeans did not bow. They're not bowing. Certain Chaldeans accused them before the king. Notice the king's response. He's enraged. Though he gives the three a second chance to explain themselves and bow down like he ordered. He warns the trio that failure will result in their deaths by fire, even adding, what God is there that is able to deliver you from my hand? Now notice the pointed response of the three Jewish men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. First they say, we need not give you an answer. That is, we don't need to defend our actions, make excuses, or reconsider our position. Second, they say, our God is able to deliver us. You say no God is able to rescue us. We know that our God can. Third, they say, God will deliver us from your hand. I just have to fill up the slide again. God will deliver us from your hand. But then they say, fourthly, even if God doesn't, we will not serve your gods or bow to your statue. Notice the king's response here. Even greater fury. Daniel tells us that the king's face was altered. His rage was very visible. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Now you're going to get the face of wrath. They not only disobeyed the king's command in front of everyone, which was enough to enrage Nebuchadnezzar, but they also balked at the king's gracious opportunity to reconsider. So he was enraged. And he orders the furnace to be made seven times hotter, and he picks valiant warriors from his army to tie up uh, tie up the three in their coats, caps, and clothing, and then throw them into the furnace. Now everything is happening so fast, and the fire is so hot, that the warriors that are throwing in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are killed by the fire. The heat and flames kill these warriors. And meanwhile, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown in with the binding still on them. But then notice what astounds Nebuchadnezzar. Though three were cast in, he sees four inside the furnace. And they're walking around and they're unharmed. And the fourth one looks like a son of the gods. Now some translations say the son of God, but probably the better sense is a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar's theology is probably not monotheistic. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar commands the three to come out to him. But notice how he tells them to come out. He says, come out, you servants of the Most High God. All the governors and officials gather around to see these men come out, and notice what they observe. The fires had no effect on the men's bodies, their hair, or their clothing. They don't even smell like fire. The only thing that burned when they were cast in were the bindings that were put on them, apparently, because they no longer have them. And then notice Nebuchadnezzar's further reaction. He blesses their God and he commends their behavior, how they yielded up their bodies to be, to be burned rather than worship any God except their own. They, he acknowledges that they trusted in their God. They entrusted themselves to Yahweh. Nebuchadnezzar then decrees that anyone speaking against this God will be torn apart and have his house destroyed. And notice the new declaration the king gives about this God. He says, there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. All right, now that we've made these observations, let's interpret. Why did Nebuchadnezzar build a golden statue? Can somebody answer nice and loudly? Say that again. It probably has to do with the dream. Now, again, we can't say for sure, because the text doesn't tell us explicitly. But we do know that the context of this passage is chapter 2, where Nebuchadnezzar was told, you are the head of gold. Your kingdom is the head of gold. Oh, gold. And he's, he's had this dream of a statue. And that got him thinking, I'd like to make a golden statue of myself. That's probably why. But we're, we can't say for sure. What did the statue probably depict? Of what was the statue representing? 
probably Nebuchadnezzar himself. Again, we're not told. But I'll make, we can make this inference, I think, because of the dream and because that was a, that was a, um, a human-looking statue before and the, the head of gold represented Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, so probably a statue of himself. Based on this passage, before we see God's deliverance, how would we describe Nebuchadnezzar's view of himself? Um, can you say that again? Oh, very inflated view. Yes, he, he sees himself on the level of the gods. Who is able to oppose me? What god is able to deliver you out of my hands? You need to worship the statue that I've set up because I'm so great. He has a very high view of himself. He, he believes himself to be uh, supreme in power and worthy of worship, or at least worthy of being obeyed. Now, why? Uh, actually, I'm going to skip that question. And Nebuchadnezzar wanted to show himself and his gods to be great. He wanted to do that before his officials and maybe some of the, the, the regular people who were there. But what is the unexpected result of this dedication service? That's certainly true. He sees that there is some resistance to his plan to exalt himself and exalt his gods. But think about how all of this ends. Does he end up exalting his gods? No, he doesn't exalt his gods, but he exalts Yahweh. He himself is giving testimony. I mean, God gives testimony based on what God does, but then Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges it. He says, this God, there is no one like this God. No one is able to rescue like this God. So this dedication service turns out to do the total opposite of what Nebuchadnezzar intended. But that's God giving himself the glory. Now, why did certain Chaldeans report the Jews for not bowing? We're not told specifically. But considering the rapid rise of these three Judeans, considering the fact that they believe in a totally different religious system and come from a different culture, this is probably motivated by envy. This is probably people wanting to see these three lose their position, get in trouble, and maybe ingratiate themselves more with Nebuchadnezzar. And we're not told specifically, but that certainly makes sense. And we know that's what's going to happen later on with Daniel regarding his position. Now think about the trio's response to the king's rebuke. The three said that they believed God would deliver them. But even if God didn't, they still wouldn't bow down. Now, by saying these two things, did the three demonstrate true faith in God, or does their if not reveal that they actually were doubting God at least somewhat? I would say the same thing. Yes, they did show true faith, because we have a commendation given to them in the New Testament. Uh, if you're familiar with Hebrews 11, that is a section of Hebrews that just details how different people manifested faith in the Old Testament, showing that salvation has always been by faith. Righteousness has always been obtained by faith. And what does it say regarding Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Let me read part of it to you. Hebrews 11, 32 to 34. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, talk about that a little bit later, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. So this kind of said only quickly there, but the New Testament affirms that these men were acting by faith. It was a dem or demonstrable, worthy of, of being imitated faith. Uh, hold on, just one second. Okay. So, if the New Testament affirms that they were strong in faith, that their faith was worthy of being imitated, then how should we view their admission that God might not choose to save them?
Yes, they they did have faith that God was going to do good, that God was going to accomplish whatever he wanted. They were acknowledging that God is sovereign and that they couldn't, they didn't know what God and his sovereignty was going to do. They knew that God was going to somehow take care of them, but they didn't know if it was going to be by protecting their lives or just by resurrecting them after they died, by bringing them into his presence. Because remember, we were talking before about how even though they didn't know everything about, or they didn't necessarily have all the details about heaven that the New Testament believers did, they certainly knew that they were going to be with God after they died. So they knew that if they followed God, God was going to preserve them and reward them, even if it meant that they were going to die. And they did not know, they knew God could deliver them, that he could miraculously save them, but they didn't know if he was going to. So vibrant faith, an admission of not knowing God's sovereign will, those things, they still go together. One way or the other, they knew God would keep his promises to them. To them, And they were made themselves ready for either outcome. They made themselves ready for whatever God was going to do. I think there's a valuable principle for us here in what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do. We sometimes, I think, get hung up when the New Testament exhorts us to, when we pray, believe that we will receive what we have asked. And if we are asking according to God's promises, then we ought to do that. God always keeps his promises. So if we're praying on the basis of a promise, then we, there should be no doubt. We should believe that God will give us what he has pledged. If you ask God to provide for you, believe that he will because he's promised to do that. There's no, you can't say to yourself, well, I don't really know what God is going to do. No, God has already promised to provide for you, so you can believe that. There's no reason to doubt. It would be wicked for you to doubt. Or if you, um, if you ask God to save you, cleanse you from your sins, if you actually repent, you can believe that God actually does that because God's promised to do that, right? He says, um, all those who come to me, I will not cast out. He says that he does not refuse the broken and contrite heart. So if we are coming to God on the basis of his promise, then we ought to believe him without doubting. Those are specific promises given to us by God. But what about when we ask for things that were not specifically promised by God? Maybe some of the details of how God's going to provide. And we do pray these types of things. God, please heal this cancer. God, please save this family member. God, please give me this job. I really need it. Now, there's no guarantee that God will give us those things. We need to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and let God have his way. Those are worthy things to pray for. They're not wrong things to pray for. And we know that whatever God's answer is, it's going to be in accordance with his promises. So sometimes it is to give us exactly what we ask. But we must let God have his way. We are to come to God in prayer and to act in our lives in a way that shows we believe God's promises, but we are not to presume on God. This is not the name it, claim it sort of faith that some articulate. If you just pray and believe that God will do something, then he's obligated to do that. No, that's not really the way it works. I think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are an example of that. But like them, like these three Jews, when we act or pray, According to our belief in God, we are acknowledging God and we know you are able to do this. God, we're not doubting that. But if this is what you don't choose to do, we're going to remain obedient. We're going to remain obedient whether you choose to do this or not. Because if you're not going to do what, what we pray for, or if you're not going to do according to what we believe you would do or believe you could do, we know that you've got something else. Another question, why, does, why do we get all these details about the fire's temperature, the warriors being killed who cast them in, the fact that the trio emerge unbound, and the complete lack of effect of the fire on the bodies and clothing of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Why do we get those details? Say that again, please. 
Yeah, the, there's a supernatural display of power here. And a power that was obviously greater than even Nebuchadnezzar's own. I mean, what a, what a very specific control of the fire. On the one hand, the people throwing them in are killed because it's so hot. So it's not like this fire was not, not burning or something like that. Also, their bindings are burned in the fire. So the fire does burn. And yet they are not harmed or affected in their clothing and body at all. It's like an extremely selective and detailed control over what this fire does. Even seven times heated, which was a manifestation of Nebuchadnezzar's wrath. I'm not just going to make you burn. I'm going to make you burn. But God says, no, you're not. Because I have the control, not you. And God preserves them. So this is a definite demonstration of God's power over any human power and even over the natural world. Now, who is the one who looked like a son of the gods? Now, some translations, like I said, say the son of God. Is this the son of God? You cannot say for sure. Certainly, as Nebuchadnezzar says, this is someone from God. He says an angel from Yahweh came and protected these men, and it could be the angel of the Lord. And remember, we've talked about in previous lessons, the, the angel of the Lord is the Son of God. It's the pre-incarnate Christ. It's Jesus. A lot of people, I think, favor the interpretation that this is actually the Son of God with them in the fire. We can't say that for sure. But even if it's just an angel, this was still a personal act of power and care from God. He's not only going to save these three men, but he's going to testify that I, my personal presence is with them. I'm sending my angel to directly comfort and protect and care for them. And he didn't, he didn't just want to show that to them, but he showed that to everybody who was observing. He showed that to Nebuchadnezzar. He showed that to his officials. So what is the point of all this? Why does Daniel give us this account? Why do we hear about God saving these three Jewish, um, these Jewish young men? Well, I believe it's the same as the whole point of the book of Daniel. As you, if you read the book of Daniel and you keep going through, it's all about how God is the true king and he is the one who has sovereign control. Kings, officials, and nations are in the Lord's hands. Remember back in chapter 1 where um, you, you had these Jews coming into a new land, and yet they were granted favor by various officials because God gave them that favor. They were granted ability because God granted them that ability. They were granted ability to, um, to not defile themselves with the king's food. God provided for that. God provided so that they would be just as healthy and, and, and even better and be in even better health with their diet than with the king's best food. It was God who's providing all those things. It was God who provided Daniel the dream in chapter 2. And it was God who even in that dream was showing, I have control over all of history. I'm bringing all these things about. And then here in Daniel 3, we see the same thing. God says, I am the one who's totally in control. I'm in control of the, the fire. I'm the one who's able to confound the king's plans. I'm the one who's able to protect and save my people. And how should men react based on God's continual display of power and his desire to protect his own? By trusting in the Lord. By trusting in the Lord and obeying him. Isn't that what Nebuchadnezzar says? These three entrusted themselves to their God. And God saved them. That's the point. That's the point of all of Daniel. If God is really the one who's, who is God, is the king, and is the sovereign then we can entrust ourselves to him. We must entrust ourselves to him and obey him. And that's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. We are to fear God, to believe in him, and trust him that he is able to take care of us. And that trust is going to manifest itself in obedience. Now, would God have done wrong to let these three Jews die as martyrs? Would that have been wrong? No, that wouldn't have been wrong. God could have let that happen. God didn't say that I'm going to totally save my people from death every time that they obey me. We certainly know a number of the prophets in the Old Testament, they were not saved when they were, um, when they were being injured 
or when they were being killed. But God chose to save these three. And I believe it's because he wanted to give testimony. He wanted to give an example. If I'm able to do this for these three men, so obviously and supernaturally, then I'm able to save, protect, and preserve you when you are obedient. That's what God is showing us. He can save our lives. You can get into a situation in your life and you say, there's no way out of this. There's no way out of this without me being injured or killed. But you know that your God, based on this account, you know that your God actually is able to save you. He's able to prevent you from being injured at all. He's also able to prevent you from being killed. But even if not, as these men declared, you know that if God is able to save them in um, physically, he's also able to save them spiritually. He's able to save them after they are killed. He's able to preserve you and bring you safely into his heavenly kingdom. That's why, this, that's why God gave us this. He says, I want them to see that I am the saving God who is able to rescue, no matter the situation, even when my servants are killed. So these truths, are these truths are for our instruction. Now, they're further emphasized by the other account I want to look at today. So let's move from Daniel 3 over to Daniel 6. Turn there with me, please. Now, this, one, this account we're not going to look at as closely. We're just going to read it, make some quick observations, and then we'll consider application. So Daniel chapter 6. Here we have another situation where uh, we have another situation that's going to play out very similarly to the one that we just read. This is Daniel 6, 1 to 28. We're going to read the whole chapter. This is many years later under a different ruler. This is no longer Babylon or Nebuchadnezzar. This is the Persians under Darius the Mede. A number, number of years have gone by at this point. Daniel is probably in his 70s or 80s. Let's read what happens to Daniel. Daniel chapter 6. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began, to distinguish him, or began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit, and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. They could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption, inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, We will not find any grounds of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. And these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows, King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for thirty days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. Now, when Daniel knew that, this doc that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now, his, in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for thirty days is to be cast into the lion's den? The king replied, The statement is true, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Then they answered and spoke before the king, Daniel was one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king. What's the injunction which you signed? It keeps making his petition three times a day. Then as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians, that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. And the, then the king gave orders... And Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, 
Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. A stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring, and with the signet rings of his nobles, so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. Then the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no entertainment was brought before him, and his sleep fled from, fled from him. Then the king arose at dawn, at the break of day, and went in haste to the lion's den. When he had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, inasmuch as I was found innocent before him. And I also, and also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. Then the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatever was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. The king then gave orders, and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel, and they cast them, their children and their wives, into the lion's den. And they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who were living in all the land, May your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and enduring forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Just another astounding account. And yet, this really happened. Did you notice how similar, or did you notice the similarities in the account that we just read to what came earlier? We have God sovereignly bringing Daniel into a high position in the kingdom, and which generated envy among the king's other officials. These officials contrived a way to place a uh, to place Daniel in mortal danger, and they made a law that they knew Daniel wouldn't keep because he trusted in God. And then they tattled on Daniel when Daniel remained faithful, even boldly faithful to God. It's not like Daniel said, "I'm going to pray, but I'm going to make sure that nobody sees me." He just did what he always did. Daniel believed that God would provide for Daniel through Daniel's obedience. Darius. When he heard about all of this, though he was sad, was compelled to put Daniel in the lion's den. The laws of the Medes and Persians can't be changed. It looked like there was no way to save Daniel, even though Darius tried. So Daniel was thrown in the lion's den and left there all night. But in the morning, what does Darius find? Only that Daniel's alive. And he testifies that he's unharmed because God sent an angel to close the lion's mouths. Not to mention restrain the lion's claws, because remember, lions can hurt you more than just their mouths. The text says explicitly, Daniel was taken out of the den, and no injury whatever was found on him, because he trusted in his God. Like Nebuchadnezzar, Darius then gives glory to Yahweh. He commands all the people to fear the God of Israel. But unlike Nebuchadnezzar, Darius commands those who conspired against Daniel, along with their families, to be fed to the lions. And did you catch that striking detail in verse 24? It says they had not reached the bottoms of the den before lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. So it wasn't a problem with the lions. In fact, considering the ferocity and the power of the lions for those being thrown into the den after Daniel, I don't think that that's normal. I mean, certainly the, the lions are kept hungry so that they'll be ferocious, but they hadn't even hit the ground. That seems like there's a little bit of supernatural work there. So what is the point of this account? I submit that it's the same as before. To show that God knows how to protect and rescue those who wait for him and persevere in obedience. And we can ask the same question and we get the same answer about Daniel as we did with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Did God have to save Daniel by preserving his life? No, he didn't. And after suffering a martyr's death, 
Daniel would then have been rescued in a different way. He would have been brought by God's angels safely into God's kingdom. But God chose to save Daniel's life physically, preserve Daniel physically because he wanted us to see the example. He wanted the Jewish exiles and us today to see the example. He wanted us to behold the power of God, the heart of God, the saving nature of God so that we would not be afraid. There's no situation, not financial, not social, not mortal, from which God cannot rescue you. Nothing is too difficult for God. And if he doesn't rescue in one way, it's because he's already determined that he's going to rescue you in another way. He's going to preserve you in another way, even if that way is to bring you to heaven. Now, should we expect to face life or death situations like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah? Well, right now that seems unlikely in America. But things can change fast. Regardless of probability, we know what it means to be a Christian. If you're going to be a faithful Christian, then you will be, God testifies, you will be hated, you will be insulted, you will be persecuted by the people of the world. Not necessarily every person, but some of them. But Jesus already told us about that. He says, they hated me first, therefore they're going to hate you. But he also says, be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. So we can put our confidence in Jesus. We can put our confidence in Yahweh. No matter the danger or suffering, we can say like Paul, for this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. That's 2 Timothy 1.12. None of us can say for sure, None of us can say for sure how we'll respond to a life or death situation like these men when obedience will cost us our lives or could cost us our lives. But we can get some idea of how we'd respond by how we respond with our current trials. He was faithful in a little thing is faithful in much. How do we respond to the little persecutions, the little trials? Do we trust the Lord? God gave us an account in Daniel so that like these four Jewish exiles, We might not be afraid to entrust everything we have to him because he is powerful to protect, to rescue, and provide. Pretty much brings us to the end of our lesson today. Any questions about what you've heard? If you have a question, just go ahead and speak up. I can't really see the hands. Okay, if you think of other questions. Oh, I think there's a question. Does someone someone have a question? Go ahead. Okay, okay. I think I'm hearing my own voice coming back to me. I'm like, someone's talking. All right, if you have any questions, feel free to email me. I would love to uh, go over anything that, that you still would like to ask about. But uh, here are just some other application questions to think about as we end today's class. This is just to spark your meditation. This is not going to be the exhaustion of how we can apply this passage, but these are some things to think about. The New Testament promises that the godly will be persecuted, but it also warns that Christians are not to suffer for doing evil. So, Ask yourself, do you experience persecution? If so, if you do, why? Is it truly for godly reasons? But if not, why not? Because God says that that will be the experience of a faithful person. Another question. Where lately have you failed to trust God when faced with a daunting trial or costly act of obedience? How does Daniel show you you want to change? And what steps will you take to secure this change? And then one more question. The Lord cares deeply about the sufferings of his saints and he promises to be with them. Do you draw comfort from Christ's presence with you, his promised presence. Do you really believe that he is with you? And does that give you comfort? 
Do you rest in his power and his promises for you? And do you love him for his saving heart? There really is no one like the Lord. It's like Nebuchadnezzar said, no other God is able to save in this way, not only because he has the power, but because he has the heart. Our God is by nature a saving God. There is no other savior besides the Lord. Do you love the Lord for his saving heart? That's it for this week. Next week, we leave Daniel and we go to the book of Esther. Let me pray and then I'll sign off. Lord God, we thank you for this word. What a beautiful testimony of your ability and your heart to save. Lord, you gave us this word. You saved these men as examples for us that we might not be afraid. Lord, let us not be afraid. Forgive us, God, for we have, where we have been ashamed, where we have not trusted you when we come into trials, the big and the small trials. Lord, that is not a manifestation of our true faith in you. That's not a manifestation of our actually belonging to you. But if we know you, if we've become known, or if we've been known by you, then we will trust you. So let that reality be true in our lives. I pray that you'd use this word to embolden us and encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen.